welcome to Cheap Wine and True Crime. I'm your co-host RJ. Each week we will discuss a true crime case while we drink some cheap wine we randomly grabbed off the liquor store shelf. On the last episode we began discussing the crimes of Dorothea Puente. We left off with the bodies being discovered in the backyard of her blue and white Victorian home in Sacramento, California in November of 1988. In this episode, we will dive right back into the case while finishing our bottle of 2017 Cabernet Sauvignon. Once again, I hand you over to the heart and soul of the show, my co-host and other half, Jess. Pop the cork and let's crack this case. On November 15, 1988, detectives finally have a search warrant for the inside of Dorothea Puente's house. They find a book on the counter called Drugs and Their Effects. They also find a driver's license for a former tenant, Betty Palmer, but the ID has Betty's information with Dorothea's photo. Betty has been missing since August of 1986. When they go upstairs, they find the room with the odor that John Sharp and the neighbor had told them about. By the 16th, this whole thing has turned into a media circus. There's a nationwide manhunt on for Puente. Neighbors have hung up homemade signs reading Nightmare on F Street. And it's discovered that Social Security checks have still been going to the F Street address for tenants who have not lived at the house for years. Checks are still going there for James Gallup, who was 62 and didn't return to the boarding house after having a brain tumor removed. Dorothy Miller was 64 and an alcoholic and Betty Palmer and Leona Carpenter, both in their 70s, as well as Benjamin Fink. He also had checks still going there. When the autopsies are begun, it's discovered that that leather-like substance that they found while they were digging up the bodies was actually human flesh. And with the exception of one of the bodies, all the bodies were found with no teeth. Alright, so right there, in the last episode we talked about the teeth that she threw over the neighbor's yard. I think it would be safe to say we can get rid of your idea that they're her teeth at this point. That was the wine talking. I don't really think that they were her teeth. And like I said, they were elderly, a lot of them. I mean, 62, 64, 70. They may not have had that many teeth. So it may not be that super rare that they were found without teeth if she didn't, or if someone didn't bury them with their dentures. But again, it very well could be that she was trying to keep them from being identified. Right. And also I wanted to mention here that you said Dorothea, Dorothy Miller, sorry, who was 64. That was actually the name if I remember correctly, that we found on the pill bottle that she said was a family relative, correct? Right. So if it was a relative, she was living in Dorothea's house and her checks are still going to Dorothea's house. And we figure out also that we knew the cloth was cloth. Uh, I think at this point it's safe to assume that is... Probably, probably pieces of clothing. Probably what whomever it was that that whomever that body was, it's their clothing that they were buried in. Uh, this is probably not one of the ones that was wrapped in all in plastic. Right. We also discover that the 
leather-like material we found was human flesh. Now, that's kind of got to be a little disturbing. Being the detective, you would imagine thinking if it's just leather, you probably had gloves on, obviously, but you picked it up to put it in the bag, the evidence bag to send it off. You, you probably don't have tongs with you when you're doing this because this was during his initial first search, if I remember correctly, or the second one. Well, the first, the first search was more of like a welfare check. They went to see if Bert was there. They asked him questions. They probably walked around the house just enough to see if Bert was there. But it was the second time that they went to the house that they did a more in-depth search in the house and started digging in the yard. Okay, and the second time in between the first and the second visit was when they talked to John Sharp, correct? Yes. Okay. So, given going back to the second one, my, the whole point I'm trying to get at here is you probably don't have tongs with you or anything. It, you definitely have gloves on you being a police detective and all that, but you, thinking back at it, you, you picked up human flesh and put it in a bag. Right, exactly. Whereas if they had known that that's what it was, there probably would have been some different collection methods as far as that was concerned. I definitely would have had some different ones. So now that we've gotten our autopsies back and everything like that, Detective Cabrera starts receiving phone calls. He gets a call from the family of Everson Gilmoth, 77. They had no contact with Everson since 1985 when he left for California to get married to Puente. They had seen news coverage and were calling to make sure that everything was all right. It turns out while Dorothea was in jail, from 82 to 85, she was actually corresponding with Gilmoth. They had planned to get married, and he picked her up when she was released in 85. Puente had been writing his family ever since and telling them that he was ill, and that's why they haven't spoken to him. In reality, while the two were corresponding, Everson had made the mistake of divulging the little bitty fact that he was on a pension. Shortly after they had gotten together, he had added her to his account. Alright, so we get, we have this handyman. She hired this handyman. Uh, I'm assuming he just did in odd and end stuff around the house to help with everyday chores and stuff like that. Uh, do we, did we happen to get his name anywhere? I remember it, but I can't think of it off the top of my head. Yeah, his name was Ismail Flores. And I guess he had been, you know, installing some stuff in her house, working on some paneling or something is what I read. She also uh, gave him a 1980 Ford pickup truck um, in addition to the $800 that she paid him to build this box and help her move it. Uh, she said that the pickup truck belonged to her boyfriend who was in Los Angeles and he no longer needed it. What type of box was this? Um, it Does was it say specific? Like, could, I, I think if we, yeah, I think we had gotten some dimensions somewhere. Yeah, it was. She had asked him to build a box that was six feet by three feet by two feet, and I guess she said she was going to store some books and other items in it. To me, giving everything we've researched and all that, and also just looking at the dimensions, a coffin. I'm a, I'm six feet, so yeah. To me, it sounds like a coffin. Sounds I, like a coffin to me. And I didn't come across anywhere like what was 
Everson's height or anything like that, but um, I would assume that that was a sufficient enough size box to fit this poor guy in. Average person, I would assume, it would fit inside this box. Um, and I've mentioned it before already about this case and about Dorothea herself. Again, this speaks to the level of her to be able to just con and connive and convince people to do what she needs them to do when she needs them to do it. Yeah, I guess just because of her grandmotherly appearance, she's used that to her advantage because I can't see why someone would not think that it was suspicious in any way, shape, or form to build this very specific box that I would feel if I'm hiring somebody and paying them $800 and giving them a truck to build this really specific box that probably because I have a really specific need for it, wouldn't he think that, you know, it was a little odd that she was just like, oh, never mind, it doesn't need to go to the storage facility, let's just dump it in the river. Right, and I remember reading and uh, hearing as well somewhere about, I think it was in that documentary actually where I heard it, they had, the detectives have questioned him about this because it seemed odd when everything came about and he said that he didn't think anything of it but you build a box you you leave for the night you come back the next day it's nailed shut you can't see anything inside of it and you know he had to be the one to lift it up and put it in the vehicle that they were using to dump it because i mean if he's a six foot man inside this box how is this little five foot something 130 pound woman going to lift this big box up with this big man in it in addition to the weight of the wood we don't know how heavy everson was i'm imagining that that's probably a pretty hefty box that would be very difficult to lift also i think at this time it is safe to assume she is she's already started wrapping the bodies because would, with bodily fluids and all that, you would think they would leak through the casket. Well, it's not a casket. This wooden box. I'm calling it a casket, but because to me it sounds like a casket, and I'm going to call it what it sounds like. Yeah, I think by this point, I mean, because the, so body, the bodies in the yard, she was wrapping. She didn't wrap all of them, but she was wrapping some of them, but neighbors were complaining about smells, and so I think she was probably trying to conceal things as much as possible right so this sounds suspicious to me because even if it is a trunk of valuables that you want to keep and let's say that's what it is because that's what we see it as right now and what we're told it is right now why would you just say i don't need this let's throw it in the river yeah she later said something like oh it's just junk let's just dump it but like if it was just junk then you wouldn't be renting a storage facility. Right, and why pay somebody $800 to build a box to put junk in when you can go to the store and buy some garbage bags to throw junk away? Not even that. Give them a truck. Let's look at the time frame here. Giving someone a truck is not a small gift. Today's world, it's really not a small gift. And it wasn't an old truck at the time. It was 19, It was a red 1980 Ford pickup, but this was 1980 or 1986 when Gilmuth went missing. Right. Well, they 
She got out in 1985, so we don't really know exactly when. But early 85, and we don't know when he gets this truck as a gift either. Gift, yeah. For but still, it's a five, maybe six-year-old truck. Right. Well, it, it's safe to say it's under 10 years old, especially during this time. That's a rather large gift right. for some handiwork of painting. It had been mentioned somewhere doing some wooden panels, but I don't know how accurate that was. A handyman, just doing what handymen do. Right. Mowing grass. I mean, even in 1988, $800 seems like a lot to pay a handyman. Right. Depending on what he's doing. But if he's disposing of a body and he's going to keep his mouth shut, then maybe he's worth $800 in a pickup truck. I Exactly. I agree with you there. So, with all of that being said, we're going to get a call. Well, we're not going to get a call. The detectives are going to receive another call at this time from William Clawson. William's mother... Ruth Monroe, 61, had moved in with her friend Dorothea Puente when her husband was hospitalized with terminal cancer. He visited his mother often, but when he went to visit her on April 27th of 82, she was suddenly so ill that she was bedridden. The next day, he receives a call that she had died from an overdose of Tylenol and codeine. The death was ruled a suicide. This never seemed right to her son. Right here, I have to agree with the son, because if you're so bad that you're bedridden, then that would I would that means someone else is getting your medication for you, is what I'm getting at here. Right. I would think. But the son, I believe, was also under the impression that Dorothea was a nurse, and that Dorothea was taking care of her and was doing what needed to be done because she had that medical knowledge. But even with that said, it can't be deemed a suicide. If she couldn't get the medication If she herself. prescribed the wrong medication. If Dorothea had prescribed the wrong medication well, to her. Well, administered the wrong medi medication. Correct. Sorry. Outline is definitely getting to. But that's what I'm trying to get at. Right. Here. Because if she's bedridden, she can't even get out of the bed. She's not probably going to have the wherewithal to get up, get a big enough handful of Tylenol with codeine or Tylenol and codeine, I don't know exactly how the mixture, the goes, mixture goes back then. But she's probably not going to be able to get that for herself and take enough to kill herself. For me, that raises red flags in this situation. And it clearly does for the son here as well, um, William. It, it raises questions for him. And, I mean, it's your mother. So... You go from visiting her often, she's doing as well as she can be. We can only assume it doesn't really say what her conditions were or anything. Uh, I mean, terminal cancer, obviously, not good. Right, and because her husband was suffering that, they assumed that she was depressed, and that's what led to the suicide. Oh, that's correct. Sorry, I thought for some reason she, looking back here, I'm thinking she has terminal cancer. Yeah, she moved in with Dorothea because she didn't want to live alone. Her husband was in the hospital, so no one was at, you know, her house with her or their apartment, what, you know, wherever they were living. Okay, back on track now. I got you. <laughs> so, it still goes to speak. That actually speaks more to what I was saying then. Because 
She's doing fine. She she's healthy right. enough yeah, to be walking not, around. Yeah, she's not and dying all of that. terminal cancer. Correct. All right. My thing here is look at the year. Nineteen eighty two. Right. Somebody's getting ready to go to jail in eighty two. Dorothea's going to jail in eighty two. Yeah, Dorothea goes to jail in eighty two. Dorothea and Ruth, I read somewhere, had some kind of, like, little side business together, like a catering thing or something like that, and they had a joint account. So, we're maybe setting money aside? If Ruth's For when we not, get out? If Ruth's not around, we can maybe take that money and stuff it in our purse and run away. I did read somewhere that when she was arrested in 1982, again, had a bunch of cash on her, and they thought that she might be intending to run. So now we are at Wednesday, November 16th of 1988, and the detectives receive a call that Charles Williews had spent the afternoon in a bar with Fuente and had talked about his social security benefits. He leads them to the Royal Viking Hotel where she's been hiding out in Los Angeles. Now, mind you, he did not call the police when he realized who she was. He called the local TV station, and then the TV station actually were the ones that called the police. Um, so the police are going to go out there and knock on her door, and she's going to tell them she's not Dorothea Puente. And when they ask for ID, which she can't produce, she finally admits, okay, I am Dorothea Puente. And they arrest her. They get her on a plane to bring her back to Sacramento. She admits on the plane that she cashed checks, but swears that she never killed anyone. So it's it amazes me that you run. And you had said she had three thousand. When she ran this time, she had three thousand. I think they said twenty five hundred, three thousand in her purse. Okay, so not a large lump sum of money, but not a small lump sum of money at this time either. Right. It amazes me that what gets you caught by the cops is the same thing you've been doing the entire time. Oh, absolutely. You would think, as smart as she seemed to have been up to this point, you would think that she would know her name's going to be plastered everywhere. That it's probably not a good idea to be seen at the local bar trying to steal someone's pension check. That, depending on what time of month it is, you've got to wait the rest of the month before you see it anyways. Right, and she only went as far as Los Angeles. Like, I don't know if this was to throw off the cops, because they knew she had ties in Mexico, or had heard she had ties in Mexico. I mean, they were looking other places. Not thinking that she only went as far as Los Angeles and was holed up in a little hotel. You'd think, you know, you've got $3,000. If that can get you to Mexico, change your name... Maybe lay low for a little while before you start doing the same old scheme over and over again. Right. I agree with you there. I wonder if there's a way you can look up 
how much it would have cost, like, the total expenses of bus fare or something to get to Mexico at that time. I'm sure you could Google it or something. Yeah, you probably could. Because if we go off on the high side of 3000 that she had. Alright, so I just Googled bus routes from Sacramento, California to Mexico City, Mexico. From $133. So she Today. could... Today. Today. Yeah, I didn't put anything in about... But here's one from Sacramento to Tijuana from $76. So imagine how cheap it would have been in 1988... To travel to Mexico, I mean, the most expensive one that I'm seeing is a flight from Sacramento to Tijuana for $534. So we could have easily, if we were Dorothea, gotten down to Mexico. For probably under 50 bucks on a bus and started a new life with the other. And the peso is more or less than the American dollar. can't remember off the top of my head. Less? I think it's less. Okay. So... That increases our money. I don't want to say doubles right. or means anything her, like right. that. Means that. her American it, dollars would go a little farther. Yeah, it it increases the money. So, why well, I, I agree with you? Why are we stopping in Los Angeles? Right. Why do we need this extra money? This right here sounds like greed, which is what gets a lot of people caught. I feel like. Yeah, I think they. I think that they said that the hotel that she was staying in in Los Angeles was like $25 a night. I don't know if that was super expensive for 1988. I can't imagine that that was expensive, but... Let's think average hotel today is almost a hundred. It depends on where you're staying. But a motel... For for the average consumer, around a hundred a night. So back then, 25... I, I, I'm really not good with the economy yeah, no, no, I understand. of then. But, the, but point of the, the point of the story is, if I can take a bus to Tijuana from Sacramento for 76 bucks Today. Today. She could have done it really, really damn cheap then. I agree with you. I, I don't know why we're in Los Angeles. Maybe we stopped at a casino and we gambled all our money away, and now we got to find somebody else to give us more. To get to Mexico. We were going to try to double it and we lost. Also possible. You know, it's pure piss. Pure peck. Pure piss. Yeah. Pure speculation. Alright, so we have her on the plane heading back home. She's admitted that she cashed everybody's checks out, but she didn't kill anyone. What do you mean you cashed her checks out, but she didn't kill them? You know they're dead, correct? Where are we going here? What is... Well, I think a lot of the people that lived in the house, what she basically did was had them sign her checks over to her, and then she, like, gave them an allowance from their check. She didn't ever give them the full check, Um, and that was, like, her room and board fee. So I think a lot of these people probably didn't see their own checks. I wonder if that's her workaround. I, I don't wonder. That sounds like her workaround... For not being able to handle people's government checks. She's not... It is government checks, but to them, she's playing it off as room and board. To the clients, so to speak, of hers. Right, like it's them paying her. It's paying her for room and board. It's not 
her handling the check. Right, but But most of these clients are not mentally capable of handling everything, so therefore she signs it and the government doesn't really look into it. Right. Which is why she's able to slip through the cracks with all these. It's what it sounds like. But even even with that theory, okay, it's payment for room and board for a boarding house that she's also not supposed to have anything to do with. So it's kind of, you know... True, and I had read actually somewhere that it had fallen under all codes to actually be a boarding house. It The way it made it sound is she had actually applied for it, but even though applying for it, they made... Well, with the way all this sound, it sounded like she had applied for it. If she had applied for it, the reasons they denied her was not because of her parole. It's because nothing was up to standards. Nothing was up to par. Okay. So, there so was... it never even made it as far as the par, as far as background checks is what it sounds like. Okay. So she, she potentially applied and got denied before it even got to the point where they would discover, hey, this lady's not allowed to do this. Right, but with the amount of homeless and mental ill that were going on, that they had in Los Angeles at the time. I feel like these were people that weren't going to find a place anywhere else, and they were going to be on the street, so a lot of people just... Right, I had read somewhere that it, it was stated that it, it happens. They fall through the cracks. Right. Not all boarding houses that are ran behind the government's back are like this, but this does given given the the playground they will play and you can have bad things happen and evil things happen of this nature so i now today i don't know it's hard to tell why not taste good anymore the the face you're giving if everybody could just see your your face right now i took a break from it and it hit me a little harder than i expected that it was going to Alright, so back on track. She's headed back home on the plane, says she never killed anybody, but there you go. Um, For everybody who doesn't know, I'm out of wine. It tastes good at this point. She just handed her glass over. Yeah. Alright, back to what you were saying. Alright, so autopsies are finally complete. Everybody, everything. So, that's the seven victims who were found buried in the yard, and they're all identified as James Gallup, Leona Carpenter, Vera Faye Martin, Betty Palmer, Burt Montoya, and Dorothy Miller, as well as Benjamin Fink. Now, I have noted here that Burt Montoya and Dorothy Miller were identified by their fingerprints, and they were able to identify Benjamin Fink by his tattoos. I didn't find how James, Leona, Vera, and Betty were identified. Um, But all of the bodies were found with Dalmain in them, which is what we believe was in that pill bottle that was found in Dorothea's house during the search. And Dalmain is like a sleeping aid, so that may have been how she was coercing her clients into doing what she wanted them to do. I had read somewhere that she was actually cooking it into her, like, cakes and stuff like that. Okay. So, throughout the neighborhood, she was actually well-known 
for her cooking. And believe it or not, she actually does have a cookbook. You're just bringing this up because you want the cookbook, and I've told you no. I, well, I, you know. <laughs> so I had debated on cooking her a meal from this cookbook, ordering it, cooking a meal, and then telling her, and then recording this and seeing how it went, but I didn't feel that would be a good idea. Anyways, she does have a cookbook, and she was well known for her baked goods and just cooking in general. She was Everybody says she was a great cook. So it's believed that she took and cooked all these drugs into her baked goods and would feed them to her clients and then that's how she would drug them to a point of because it wasn't believed at this time that all of the bodies or i had read somewhere that it wasn't believed that all the bodies were dead when she originally buried them so she would she would smother them until she believed they were smothered, and then if it has right, the effect were, that you said like that you had said where um, they were highly sedated, highly sedated, maybe with her being the age she is and not actually being a nurse and not actually not knowing how to check for a pulse, right? Thought they were dead and they weren't, because I had read like I said I'd read somewhere where they thought the not all right. There was a possibility that they weren't all dead. Right. When they were buried. So that was a possibility as well. Now, my big question is, you said everybody that was identified, but the body that was identified with no head, hands, or feet, it said here probably no teeth, but with no head, there's no teeth. Well, they were, we don't know which. I don't know what I was going with that, but they said that that body. Well, they might have been her teeth in the neighbor's yard. That's true. They just weren't found with the body. That's Still true. could have been her teeth, some of them. True. But that was that body was Betty Palmer. Yes. How was... The only way I can think that that body was ID'd is because we found the ID with Dorothy's picture on it. Were we able to, like, scratch the Elmer's glue off of the ID? Because I, I can't think that she's well, she that didn't... great in cr- creating a fake ID. Yeah, and I figure have no out idea that, how she, how we she have, that we have Betty Palmer here, but we don't have a body for Betty Palmer. This is Betty Palmer. Right. I don't know if they just figured it out based on, you know, all the circumstantial evidence. Um, or if there was a way, because, I mean, this is 1988, so there's not DNA testing where they could have just tested that torso and said, okay, it matches Betty Palmer, even though we don't have you know, teeth for dental records. We don't have hands for fingerprints. Um, I don't really understand the feet. How do they, how do you identify somebody by their feet? I don't, does it change as you grow, like when they take your footprint as a child, but does that change as you grow, kind of like your fingerprint? I would imagine that it probably changes, but maybe the like original like circles and pat, like maybe they're enough that they can compare it to that and say, you know, it's closer, it's very similar, it's very possible that this belongs to that person. Right. I mean, I could imagine that they they could have blood typed her probably. If they if there was record of what her blood type was, they could say, look, she's been missing, she has her ID, the blood type matches. You know what I mean? I just don't... Depending on how long the body had been there, I would think if you cut the hands, the feet, and the head off especially the head you're gonna get the main artery right there maybe bleed out right and 
but there's blood all within your tissue and stuff like that too. True. So if there was any, well, DNA they can get that from anywhere. You're right. Right, but if there's that doesn't I mean, have back to be then, blood. Could, right, back then they could wouldn't necessarily, but the blood is all in your tissue, so maybe they still could blood type it from that. I I, I don't know. I don't know how you could identify somebody in 1988 who was basically just a torso. Also, I'd like to note that with we had mentioned earlier, and I, I forgot to say something that's just now coming to mind is the neighbor had said something about the smells coming from the backyard and mm-hmm. stuff. She did attempt to cover up that smell because they had found traces of lye in the soil with the body where the where they found each body. Right. So there were traces of lye in the smell or in the soil as well. And now does lye does is lye used to mask the smell or it, is it used to try and break things down faster so that the smell goes away faster? It, it's used to cut the smell a okay. lot of we um had dogs growing up and where they would use the bathroom we would use lye a lot okay and or lime is what we used so i could be used saying the complete wrong thing here alcohol's taking over the brain and using the complete wrong word so forgive me if i am i don't know anything about it either way so um but it's used to it's it's used to cover up the odor, to help okay. cover up the odor. So I want, I just wanted to mention that real quick. All right, so we mentioned that all of these bodies were identified. And now here comes the weird thing. Detectives are going to put out a bulletin about the way that the bodies were found in that plastic and material and bedding and duct tape and everything that they were all wrapped up in. And they're going to put this bulletin out to see if there are any bodies discovered in the nearby area in a similar fashion, wondering if maybe Dorothea had other victims besides the ones in the yard. A John Doe, who was found in 1986 in Sutter County, is linked to her by the way this body was found, and he's later identified as Everson Gilmas. So after all of this happens, and Everson is identified as well, Dorothea is finally charged with nine counts of murder on June the 19th of 1990. Her F Street victims found in the yard, Everson Gilmas and Ruth Monroe, who was previously ruled a suicide, are all in those nine counts of murder. Question. Yes. Now, I know the answer here. Our viewers don't. But, question. Where was Gilmuth found? He was found by a fisherman on a riverbank next to, I believe, the Sacramento River. Okay. And just the body was found? Or was he found in something? He was found in a wooden box. Okay. So, one for me. Got that one. Called it. Uh, granted, I did have all the information beforehand. Yeah, we've been researching for a minute. Yeah, but I'm going to go ahead and take that score. I don't okay. get many. So, this is that box that the handyman just threw off to the side. Yep. And this now raises all sorts of questions. Now that there's a body in it, it's... And you know it had to be on the news. Like, did this guy come forward and be like, oh, shit, that's the box that she told me was full of books and junk, and she had me help her dump it off. 
turns out there was a body in it, and I built a coffin. Right, and the interviews and got I, the dead guy's truck. Right, and the interviews that I had referenced earlier were the interviews I was talking about. At this point, I I, I kind of jumped the gun earlier, but at this point, when all this comes about, he's like, "Oh fuck, I am uh, in trouble here." All right, so at this point, I want to ask the question of. Do you think that he was involved in this murder particularly? Because he wasn't, we have no proof he was around for the other ones. But as we said earlier, it seems kind of suspicious to get all of this just to build a wooden box and help out with everyday chores. I don't think that he was involved per se. Like, I think that she had a lot of people helping her that had no idea what they were doing. Like, she would hire people from parolees from the local halfway house down the street or whatever it was to come do landscaping and dig holes. And somebody in the house even said, I dug a couple holes. I didn't know what they were for. Like, I feel like she gave everybody just enough information. Like, oh, I need this for this. I need this for that. She gave everybody just a little tiny bit of information and probably a nice little cash under the table payout to do what she needed them to do. This guy knew that this was suspicious, but I don't think he helped her kill him. I don't think he put the body in the box. I think he should have known something was, like, really shady, but I don't think he was in on the murder, per se. You're saying, basically, I'm getting a damn near new pickup truck out of this. A decent amount of money. I'm not going to ask questions. I'm just going to take it and go. Exactly. He didn't see anything, so there wasn't anything to tell anybody about. All he knew was... He's got plausible deniability. Exactly. He built a box, he trashed a box. That's all he knows. And going back to what you said about her getting people to help, I don't know what she told the helpers at the time, the people she was hiring to do all this, but during the interrogation, every time he, the detective would talk about holes from here to here to here to here because he had obviously lived in the area, drove past it several times. He would notice different holes and stuff like that. She would say that they were from looking for sewer pipes. It was always sewer pipes or gas lines, but she was always looking for those. So maybe she told the people that she was having help her dig these holes that that's what they were looking for right now i think you have to dig a lot digger than two three feet which is what all these bodies were discovered at correctly or was it a little I think bit it deeper? was like four i think it was like four feet four feet that i think you have to dig a little bit deeper for that than sewer lines yeah i would imagine so because you don't want them so close to the but, surface because during the interview she would constantly say yeah like two or three feet but she did slip up at one point i i i was watched the interview several times now or the integration several times now and uh, she slipped up once and said oh i thought that hole was supposed to be about five i mean two to three feet deep so she did slip up one time but, so she told somebody to dig this hole five feet deep, and they got lazy and stopped at two or three feet. Right, but when she's talking to detectives and all of that, she she's trying to play that. it off 
as two or three feet. Right. And when they found the body under the shed, I know that was a while back as well, but the when in during the interrogation, the detective had mentioned how it was only like three inches of concrete, which was very odd. He's no, I think he had said something along the lines of he's no, you know, concrete expert, but he's been around long enough to know that that's fresh concrete, and it, it wasn't would, a thick enough slab. He never said it. What he never said that, but at three inches, which was really the interesting part, was because she kept saying that she could have swore it was five inches. It was supposed to be five inches thick. So she probably told whomever she had that handyman mm-hmm. fill it in five inches thick. But given the fact that you're always hiring people who aren't on the up and up, on the up and up, and all of that, and looking to make an easy dollar, or they don't have the mental capacity to be able to do it, right? You didn't get what you asked for, right? So they now did. you're finding out in this interrogation that. Oh, well, that wasn't. Well, this kind of makes me look, because it doesn't go go with my story. Right. So now, on February 2nd, 1993, Dorothea's murder trial is finally going to start. There was a change of venue, and they moved the trial to Ventura County. There were 156 witnesses and over 3,000 exhibits. But her defense stuck to their guns that these victims died of natural causes and she just buried the bodies so she could continue collecting their checks. After 24 days of jury deliberations, the longest in a California murder trial, Dorothea was convicted on August 26, 1993 of the first-degree murders of Benjamin Fink and Dorothy Miller and the second-degree murder of Leona Carpenter. The other counts were votes of 11 to 1 in favor of guilty verdicts, and the other counts were declared a mistrial. On October 13, 1993, she was sentenced to life without parole. She received two life terms and one 25-to-life term for the three counts that she was convicted of. All right, so this was... As you said, one of the longest deliberations a jury ever had. And this took a large part in... There were some people on the jury who just couldn't get over the fact of how much good she had done for the community. They couldn't believe that this little grandmotherly lady had done all of this. And that's what took it so long. And it wasn't necessarily for all the murders. They were okay with nine of them. And that's that's what's so strange to me is there was not there was nine counts total. Three she was convicted of, so the other six were a mistrial. So the thing that's the weirdest to me is alright. The ones that she was convicted of were Benjamin Fink, Dorothy Miller, and Leona Carpenter. But Everybody was found in her yard, with the exception of Gilmas and Ruth Monroe. I could see maybe those two not being but those ones two that were, she was convicted of. But those were two that she was convicted of. 
No, those two she was not convicted. Okay, so those two but make I sense. I could understand those two because the bodies were not on her property. But how are you going to have of the seven people that were found on the property, three of them she murdered, but what happened to the other four? And that was really strange. That was really strange to me. What gets me about this is that you, you deliberate for twenty four days. Okay, we don't know exactly how it came down to. Maybe you were like, okay, we agree with these nine. If you couldn't believe that she committed six of the counts, then why were you able to say that she committed nine of the counts? That's my biggest thing as a jury. Right. And my biggest thing is... Okay, How were you to be able to come to a unanimous decision on nine, but not those last three? Those two, I do, I can see three. with... Six and three. Six, you couldn't decide. Three, they convicted. Okay. Three, they convicted. Sorry. Three they convicted, the six they couldn't decide. I can understand two of the six that you couldn't decide. The, right. the two that you dimensioned where the bodies were never actually found. In the yard. And honestly, I could see Betty Palmer as being one, too, because, again, with the hinky identification with no identifying qualities. Right, we do like, technically... I could see that being one, too, if they said, okay, we could only identify her circumstantially because her ID was here, her checks come here, she's missing, etc. We don't have DNA yet, so you know what I mean? Okay, so there's three that I can see maybe being a mistrial, but exactly. the other six that were in her garden, in her front yard, in her side yard, I, I just don't understand how you can pick and choose which ones of those you're going to convict her on when they were all there. And are they... If that's the case, and if they were mistrials, are they still considered cold cases at this point? Because if you're saying she didn't do it, then that means the murderer was still out there, according to police. Yeah, that is true. And if it was a mistrial, then that means that she could be tried again, or someone else could be tried for those crimes. So, at the end of the day, the biggest thing that caused this deliberation to take so long and I don't know if it still holds up there as one of the longest and today yeah I don't know if it's if that still holds up I, I know this was in an article that was from like 2009 or 2010 so I know as of then it was the longest well we'll check that and we'll put that on our social media actually because that seems like an interesting uh, statistic to figure out but it was because of the fact that everybody couldn't get over the fact that she was grandmother at the end of the day. Yeah, they this looked at her. This persona she, that she had put on. Yeah, they look at her. She looks like grandmom. She used to cook for everybody, and she used to donate clothes, and she took in all these people that nobody else would take in, and they just couldn't get around this little old lady. So she had actually met with, like, the mayor or the governor or something? Like, a few famous had, people yeah, at the same time hand, as well? She had a handful of photos in her house of her with, like, politicians. And, I mean, she used to claim that she was friends with all kinds of people, like Ronald Reagan and stuff. But, I mean, she appeared to be a liar. So take, mm -hmm. take that with, you know, a grain of salt. Right, but... It, before all this, nobody knew it. Everybody thought she was a sweet grandma. It's right. easy to believe all these lies that right, she's exactly. feeding you. You know. And also the timeline fit because she was telling everybody that she was at least 20 years older than she actually was. Right. So when this sweet old grandma, Dorothea, was interviewed for Sacktown Magazine's August-September 2009 issue by Martin Coos, 
He said, I wonder what it's like to be known as a murderer. To which she simply responds, I don't give a shit what anyone else thinks. It's believed that Dorothea could have been responsible for around 25 deaths. She died on March 27, 2011 at Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla of cancer. She was 82. I don't give a shit what anyone else thinks. Yeah. And this was one of her last interviews, correct? Yes. So those are those are some words to go out on. She still maintained her innocence, but sweet old grandma didn't give a shit what anybody thought. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of Cheap Wine and True Crime. Quick disclaimer, we do the best research that we can to ensure information is correct, but we welcome your suggestions and corrections. Please follow us on Twitter at Cheap Wine Crime and on Instagram at Cheap Wine and True Crime. Until next wine.